A major theme of this psalm is the judgment of the wicked. It is good for readers of this psalm to reflect on that truth. The coming judgment of the wicked. For several reasons. Number one, believers should find comfort in the Lord's righteous judgment of the wicked. Knowing that with all the evil that we see committed under the sun, that evil does not have the last word. That the Lord's righteous judgment is indeed a comfort for the people of God. The writer of Ecclesiastes is meditating at one point on all the evils under the sun. And he says, but then I took to heart this, that God would bring all to judgment. Knowing that a consolation is powerful and that we know of the Lord's righteous judgment upon evil. We consider, consider a second possibility, a reason why we should reflect on this truth. Because unbelievers should tremble at the prospect of their judgment. If believers find consolation at the judgment of the Lord, for in Christ we are not condemned, the unbeliever should find no consolation at the doctrine of God's judgment. They should tremble before the God who is righteous and holy. Three. Three. The future judgment is something taught all over the Bible. We should reflect on the judgment of the Lord... Because it's taught all over the Bible. It's in the books of Moses. It's in the history of Israel once they're in the promised land. It's taught in the Psalms and in the Proverbs. It's in Ecclesiastes and in the book of Job. It's taught throughout the prophets. It's in the four Gospels. It's in the book of Acts. The letters of the New Testament teach it. And the book of Revelation announces its appointed day. Number four, the future judgment should cause us to see the wonder of God's love demonstrated at the cross. As human beings, we have an entitlement problem. We are perhaps amazed, and wrongly so, that God would bring judgment to sin. We can feel quite worthy and favorable regarding our works and deeds at times. And think that maybe I can strive hard enough, and compared to others, I'm quite good enough. And the idea of heaven almost seems like the default assumption. And we would be surprised that there would be condemnation for the wicked. When in fact, it ought to be precisely the opposite. The future judgment should cause us to see the wonder of God's love. We should think to ourselves, there is a way to heaven We should think to ourselves that in the light of our egregious rebellion against a righteous and holy God, we should think to ourselves, He has given a Savior? What is this news? So the future judgment should cause us to see the wonder of God's love demonstrated at the cross. And then lastly, the future judgment is connected to the holy and righteous character of God. Why is there a judgment upon the wicked? It is not because God is unholy. It is not because he is rash and temperamental. It is not because he's unrighteous. There is a coming judgment because God is holy and righteous. Reflecting on the final judgment helps us to connect it to the character of God. Something to know about Psalm 9, before we get into its verses, is that Psalm 10 is a companion to it. What I mean by that is that this psalm shares features with Psalm 10. Now, already in our study in book one of the psalms, I've tried to show various word and concept connections 
with psalms paired together. How chapters 1 and 2 have interesting connections. And how chapters 3 and following have overlapping themes and words. Looking at one psalm alongside another psalm yields interesting insights when you compare them. Psalms 9 and 10 are even more companions than usual. They are meant to be read together for the following reasons. Psalm 9 gives a Davidic authorship claim. Did you notice that at the top of the superscription? A Psalm of David. If you go to Psalm 10, we're surprised because there's not a superscription. It resumes in Psalm 11 with a Psalm of David, but we've seen Psalm after Psalm after Psalm give you a Davidic authorship claim. Psalm 10 lacks it. It is likely that the superscription of Psalm 9 governs not just Psalm 9, but governs Psalms 9 and 10. Consider in addition to this, there are certain words and concepts between the two Psalms that bind them together. We'll see that more next week when we look at Psalm 10. But most interestingly, and we can't see this in the English translations, but in Psalms 9 and 10, there's a very clever use of the Hebrew alphabet. Psalms 9 and 10 form together something called an acrostic, which moves in order, borrowing letters from an alphabet. And when Psalm 9 is finished, it's borrowed from the first 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, starting certain verses with certain letters moving down the alphabet line. Psalm 10 borrows from the last 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, moving along forming together with Psalms 9 and 10 an interesting unit of psalms. When we uh, look at Psalm 10 next week, we'll see more of how they are bound together. But I wanted to mention that before we got into the verses, Psalms 9 and 10 are companions, and this is a psalm of David. Some information in the superscription to the choir master, and then there's this phrase. Are we puzzled by this? According to Muth Laben, a psalm of David. What does that refer to? Now, that, that is very much a way of putting into English letters what the original language would sound like. If you were to translate it, it's something to the effect of concerning the death of the Son. Concerning the death of the Son. And the reason that might be interesting in David's Psalms is because in Psalm 3, we saw a superscription where David's son Absalom was in rebellion against him. And in Psalm 7, we saw a superscription of words of Cush, someone who has allied with Absalom's rebellion against David. And we know that in 2 Samuel, if we keep reading what happens with Absalom's rebellion, Absalom dies. Absalom dies in 2 Samuel chapter 18, killed by the judgment of the Lord. And I want to suggest to you this morning that in light of what these previous superscriptions have suggested with historical settings of an exiled suffering king under the assault of his own son Absalom, that this line about the death of his son is David's acknowledgement of God's justice. Of David recognizing the righteousness of God on display. And David will praise the Lord for his delivering grace. So in the Psalms, we read now in verses 1 and 2, the resolve to praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. And you read these earlier Psalms. David is not ignorant of suffering. He has suffered much affliction. He knows what it is to be falsely accused and surrounded on every side. He knows what it is to be afflicted bodily and mentally. And he says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. 
Oh, the danger of half-hearted interest in God. If you're half-heartedly interested in God, you've not considered your great need. If you're half-heartedly interested in God, you've not been astounded by His great worth. David says, with my whole heart, with all that I am, O God, I want to praise You. Praise You for what? Well, for all that You've done. With all that I am, for all that You've done, I want to praise You. He says, I will recount Your wonderful deeds. It takes deliberation to recount something. And to recount means probably not just to say out loud to oneself in the mirror, though individually recounting can be done. Some of you might talk to yourselves. And here you have a man, though, who says, I will recount, and probably in the presence of others, that as the king of Israel, he will make it known of the delivering grace and power of God, God's wonderful deeds. It is good to recount the deeds of the Lord. It's going to take time and even pen and paper and to reflect what is it that God has done with His mighty deeds in my life. It is good to listen to other people recount the deeds of the Lord, especially older saints. When you have someone who's walked with God for decades, they have many years of the Lord's faithfulness they can bear witness to. So sit and listen. Sit while you can with them while they say, Dear one, hear me as I recount the wonders of God. He says here, I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and I will exult in you. Exult almost sounds like the word exult. And David will say, along with the other psalmist, that he wants to exalt the Lord. Many psalms talk that way. We don't use the word exult a lot. You know, a U instead of an A. Exult means to rejoice in. It means to find great joy in it. He says, I will be glad and exult in you. It's a way of taking uh, one's heart and delight up into God. He says, I will be glad in God. His circumstances aren't what necessarily will prompt gladness given things he's gone through. He's not focused on the circumstances. He knows God. And because he knows God, he will be glad in God and exult in God. It's a way of our heart finding satisfaction in God. One of the most important statements that I think John Piper has ever said or written is the summary of biblical truth that goes this way. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And David, I think David is saying, my resolve is that my whole heart, all of my being, be satisfied in you. Because David was made for that. He wasn't made to be back and forth in resolve and allegiance depending on the ever-changing winds of circumstances and cultural opinion within his kingdom. He knows God. And he knows God has done things. God has wonderful deeds. How could his deeds be anything other than wonderful? God doesn't do mediocre deeds. God's deeds are amazing. When God acts and says, let there be light, and then everything that followed from that, the deeds of the Lord are amazing. His creation, astounding. His acts of providence, wonderful. And how He works all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Who are we to have deserved such a merciful decree from God? God's deeds are amazing. Think of His acts of redemption and rescue. The Old and New Testaments tell us of the intervening grace of God. His deeds are wonderful. David says, when I think on that, when I think about what God has done and what He is like, 
How can I not be glad in God? So I would imagine that in verse 2, if being glad and exulting in God and singing praise to God isn't something you desire, then you have not meditated upon the greatness and wonder of his being and his deeds. Because for David to recount the deeds of the Lord, to give thanks to God with his whole heart, that does something to his heart. And he is glad and sings praise to God. Part of what his praise and gladness are is because of the deliverance he's experienced. In verses 3 through 6, he's going to recount a deliverance. And in the previous Psalms, we know that David doesn't have to just face an occasional trial or hardship. First and second Samuel tell us of the sufferings of King David. And in Psalm 9:3, he says, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. Earlier in Psalm chapter 2, the kings and nations of the earth were warned that when they gather against the anointed one, the Lord in heaven laughs at their conspiracy and their deeds and brings them to a time of judgment. In Psalm 1, the righteous stand like a tree planted by living waters, but the wicked perish. And David says, I've seen that happen in real time. He said, I've seen my enemies stumble. They thought their path was so straight. Their feet went out from under them. They thought they would endure and that their plans were so firm. I watched them perish before you. Before your very presence. This is David saying, I can bear witness to the danger of living in rebellion against God. Some of you have that same testimony this morning. Some because you know of others and you can bear witness to the danger of living in defiance before the Lord. Some of you know this personally because you've lived in rebellion against God. You have faced consequences for your sins. You know the sowing and reaping of folly and the heartache that will follow. And you have experienced the intervening grace of God. And He has not treated you according to your many sins, but instead has counted them to His Son so that you would have life in Him. And so you can recognize from personal experience that you are not condemned and there is joy in your heart. He says in verse 4 to God, You have maintained my just cause. Meaning that David did not justifiably provoke the rebellion that Absalom and others had faced, that had uh, conspired against him. David is in the right. And God has come alongside David as his divine defender. And he says, you've maintained my just cause. It's a way of saying you've paid attention to what was needed. You acted, O God. You did not leave us and forsake us. You sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. God's judgments are always righteous. If it doesn't ever say righteous judgment, but it's from the Lord, we can imply it. His judgments are never unrighteous. They're never uncertain. They're never murky. They're never rash. His judgments are perfect. God sa- David says, I know this about you, God. And I know that in my own life, you've given righteous judgment. In verse 5, you've rebuked the nations, you've made the wicked perish. It reminds us of Psalm 1 and 2. We've been prepared by the opening pair of Psalms in book 1 for what David himself is saying, I've seen you already do this, Lord. It's not just something for the future. It's something in the midst of my own enemies you are working out. You've made the wicked perish, you've blotted out their name forever and ever. That sounds pretty thorough in terms of a righteous judgment. 
Blotting out the name of the wicked means to bring them to an absolute undoing. That all of their plots would come to naught. And that God's great and supreme glory and righteousness would be displayed. So that rather than celebrating the wicked, it would be God's name that endures and not theirs. Blotting out their name forever and ever is language from the books of Moses and from the other other Psalms where they even ask God to do this upon the wicked. That God on that day of judgment, would you upon the evil ones bring their memory to nothing? So that whatever their kingdom was, whatever their strivings were to achieve, God has overcome. In verse 6, the enemy came to an end. In everlasting ruins, their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. David is speaking strongly here. And this is not even the final judgment. David is speaking about his own experience of God's delivering grace. And how the Lord intervened when others had deemed David doomed before all of their mighty conspiracy and armies. And God shows up. Behold how thorough, righteous, and mighty God's judgment is. In verses 7 through 12... God is not like the wicked. See, the wicked come to an end with their everlasting ruins, David is singing in this psalm. But God, in verses 7 to 12, is a divine judge and refuge. What does David say about the Lord? Well, the opposite of the wicked. The Lord sits enthroned forever. That is to contrast the plans of the wicked where they wanted to exalt their own name. God brought their name to nothing. And in verse 7, he sits enthroned. He is the mighty and righteous judge. And how long does he keep his seat? He is enthroned forever. There is an unending hope that the people of God have in the righteous judgment of God. We never need waver. The Lord sits enthroned forever and has established his throne for justice. Not every seat and bench in the world where somebody might sit in legal matters would execute justice in every regard. God's throne does. And that is such a foundational comfort for the people of God, for our hope as we long for vindication and resurrection, as we hope toward glory and life to come in the age to come. And we know the wicked will fall before His mighty hand. In verse 8, He judges the world. There is not another human judge we know that has worldwide Jewish jurisdiction. But God, the divine creator of heaven and earth, he has made the world and he reigns as judge over all that he's made. And he reigns as judge with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. We wouldn't want it any other way. We wouldn't want darkness within God's heart. Corruption in God's ways. Bribery that could turn one ruling from this way to that way. We wouldn't want some kind of moral instability in divine decrees. It is such good news that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. He sits enthroned forever and when He judges, it's always upright. It is always righteous. We see here in verses 7 and 8, the perfect righteousness of God and the eternality of God. These doctrines matter for the believer. God never began and He will never end. He sits enthroned forever over all that He's made, which did come into being and have a beginning. And judges all the peoples with perfect justice. In verse 9, what should this mean for those who seek the Lord and yet the wicked are opposed to them? 
Well, in the ancient world, you would have believer upon believer in community after community seeking the Lord and going to the tabernacle in the temple in the days of Solomon and seeking the Lord in a world where authorities opposed God and where powerful people exploited and caused disadvantage for those under their authority. But there is a greater authority. There is a higher throne. And in verse 9, David says, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And friends, there will be times of trouble. You have to ask yourself what your stronghold is. And there's only one that endures forever. There's only one that's from without end or beginning. There's only one stronghold that is righteous and supreme over all the earth. Don't get some temporal, weak, undeniable stronghold. And that, by the way, would be anything other than God. In verse 9, the Lord, Yahweh, is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. People will find themselves in situations that they can't overcome by their own cleverness or strategies. Things that they can't influence to the degree that they wish they would. Their hope is ultimately in God. In a time of trouble, they turn to Him. I suggested to you when we were in Psalm chapter 7, one of the ways we turn to God is modeled by the psalmists because they are praying. We turn to God as our refuge by turning to Him with dependence in prayer. People who call God their refuge, but are not people who turn to Him in prayer, are not people who seek God as their refuge. What you turn to depend upon is your refuge, and we show our dependence upon our great God by calling upon His name. He says here that in verse 10, those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. The longer you walk with God, the longer you, you read his word and seek his kingdom. Friends, here's what you will come to realize experientially and not just theologically in your minds. You will see that God does not forsake his people. You will see it. It will become part of your testimony. You will be able to bear witness that those who trust in God never do so in vain. They know you and they put their trust in you. Now God does not come to His people through His Word and say, I'm not going to reveal anything about me. I just want you to trust. Those who know your name put their trust in you. These are people who respond in faith to what God has made known. In other words, they with their trust, with their believing heart, God reveals what He is like. He warns about what is to come. He reveals His mighty character in righteous ways. And the people of God say, we believe you. We trust you. They know His name. They put trust in Him. For God has not forsaken those who seek you. John Calvin says the reference to God's name here is a reference to His character. Because in the Word of God, God has made His character known. Listen to the way David has talked about God's character. He's talked about God's character that is eternal. God's character that is righteous. And that all of God's judgments are upright. In other words, David knows something about God. Why does David know this about God? Why is he so confident about this that shapes his prayer? Because David reads the Word of God. David knows what God has revealed about himself. And it shapes the way King David prays. Those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken 
those who seek you. Paralleled here in verse 10 are those who know, trust, and seek. The people who are trusting God can be described as those seeking after the Lord. They desire to walk in wisdom before God. They want to glorify God. They want to trust the words He's made known in the Scriptures. That's what it means to seek God. To respond appropriately to what He's made known to His people. One writer from the 1800s says that to seek God is the whole of religion, Christian religion. It consists in seeking to know God, to be like Him, to have His favor and protection, to serve and obey Him, to have communion with Him, and finally, to be with God in glory. That's what it is to seek God. We seek God, and where will that lead, friends? It will lead to the glory of new creation. In verse 11, David says, Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Now, your testimony is probably not David's, that parallels with the events of Absalom who rebelled against him with David being king over Israel. However, when David calls us to sing praises to the Lord, we are called to respond appropriately to what God has made known about himself. And as we recount his wonderful deeds and steadfast love, and as we ponder in his mighty power and his promise to judge the wicked and that all of his ways are upright, we would join David. David here is not some anomaly. He's not some person who sings to the Lord and everybody else who knows God looks and thinks, what is he doing? Calling upon the Lord and rejoicing in God is the overflow of the redeemed's heart. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. That'd be a great hymn. Someone should write one. That is a hymn, by the way. In verse 12, oh, he says in verse 11, tell among the peoples his deeds. You need to sing it and you need to share it. Spurgeon says, singing and and sharing is a means of glorifying God. Joined together here is a pair. In verse 11, singing praises, telling the peoples his deeds. We do both. Our hearts overflow with gladness and trust in God. And we don't keep that news to ourselves. We share it. Because this God, who has become our righteous refuge can be the refuge of all who will come to Him. And who needs that news? The peoples. Who are they? Well, in the ancient world, there was Jew and Gentile. There was Israelite and non-Israelite from the Old Testament vantage point. So that means those outside the community of Israel who still need to know the living God, they're the peoples. The peoples, tell it among the peoples, tell them his deeds, so that as people ponder the greatness of God, and as they hear of his majestic works, and as they see his great worth and glory, they will say, give me a hymn book, let me join you. Let me sing praises to the living God. In verse 12, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. What is man that he is mindful of them, Psalm 8 said. Psalm 9, very next psalm, David said, the avenger of blood. In other words, the one who oversees the oppressed. The one who will vindicate his people who have been exploited and treated so shamefully by others in the world. The one who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted and that is bad news for the wicked. They may move on to other plots and strategies. God never forgets the cry of the afflicted. 
He will answer every cry of the afflicted. If not now in history, with the fall and confounding of the ways of the wicked, on the day of judgment, all perfect justice administered. God forgets no cry. He does not forget the cry of the wicked. I'm sorry, the afflicted. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted and the wicked should tremble. What is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm 9 tells us in verse 12, God is mindful. Even of those completely rejected and ostracized by others. In verses 13 through 18, there's a present circumstance that seems to have arisen. Now we looked at verses 1 to 12 and David has gone on and on. And at first we might be thinking this is just a celebratory psalm from something God has done. David's just reflecting. Just recounting. But starting in verses 13 and following, it seems that there is still a present need David has and he shifts to that now. He has celebrated. He has rejoiced. He has recounted. He has invited others. He has exhorted the fellow believers to tell the people's God's mighty deeds. And now he prays for something else. In verses 13 to 18, look at his present request and his confidence in God. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. In verses 13 to 14, David's request is for present graciousness. Be gracious. Likely, David's wording here is rooted in the priestly prayer of Numbers 6. Earlier in the Psalms, we've already seen this background. In Numbers 6, 24, the prayer was from the priests to the people, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. There's the word. And be gracious to you, the prayer would say. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. David is praying that God would answer that blessing. Be gracious to me, God. David wants what the priestly blessing would pronounce over the people. See, the king of Israel is in need of it. There is no position David could ever attain, nor that we could ever attain, that would exempt us from the need of God's gracious mercy. David here recognizes what he needs. And what he needs, with all his military might, and even the recent overthrow of Absalom's plots, you know what David needs? God's graciousness. His face to shine upon him. His favorable hand at work in his life. And he calls God to see my affliction from those who hate me. Why does David pray verse 13? Because he believes what verse 12 said. Verse 12, God does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So David says, see my affliction. In other words, verse 13 is David practicing what he knows God doesn't forget. God doesn't forget the afflicted. David says, well, I happen to qualify as afflicted. And so he's saying, see my affliction, Lord. My affliction from those who hate me. And this is not merely something that's internal within David. But circumstances and figures in his life who despise him. And who would act against him. And not for his good, but for his downfall. David pictures the kind of precipice he would be at if left to himself. It's like he's at the gates of death. That's pretty grim. That's pretty good. That's not a little bit. That's not like, oh, this had a really rough afternoon. This is 
I'm at the gates of death. And what David longs for is the delivering power of God that will result in the opposite end of the, uh, of the situation in verse 14, that he would be at the gates of Zion. Notice the gates connection in verses 13 and 14. Gates of death, you're the one who lifts me from that. So that I can recount all your praises and then in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. Now, the daughter of Zion is an Old Testament way of referring to Jerusalem, David's king in Jerusalem. So he's saying, I want to continue in this place where I am king and I want to recount your deeds so that I'm not at the gates of death, but in the gates of the city called by your name. And I can sing and recount what you have done. Then David speaks about what will happen with the nations as if it's already accomplished. This is not the final judgment, obviously. In verses 15 and following, David is writing over 3,000 years ago. David reigned from about 1010 B.C. to 970 B.C. Here we are in 2023 A.D. This is an old psalm, okay? Millennia old. When David is talking about what happens to the enemies, he's not here talking about the final judgment fulfilled. He's talking, though, about what happens in the providential wisdom of God to the wicked all the time. That even before the final judgment, there are signs and signals everywhere of what happens to the wicked, and therefore they should tremble. It says the nations have sunk into the pit that they made. In the net that they hid... Their own foot has been caught. This is what you call biblical irony. The irony is that this hunting metaphor, which is what digging a pit or setting a snare would be for, to hunt prey, here these nations have been opposed to and antagonistic toward people like David. And they have, they've dug the pit, covered it with branches and brush, and they're waiting behind the tree for the person to fall through. You know, This is a figure of speech. It's a way of saying... The enemies of God and of God's king have allied together against him. And that what they design for the undoing of David and his people, it's become their own undoing. That's what it would mean if someone who was hunting fell into his own pit. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. You know, they would hide some sort of net so that it would catch a smaller creature likely. Pits dug for bigger animals smaller nets for smaller animals and here someone's foot is coming through and the trap springs the wicked think they're more clever than they actually are they think they'll get away with it for longer than they actually will and they don't believe the consequences will be what they actually will turn out to be here in verse 15 David is speaking about the providential working of God through the lives of the wicked that undoes their very plans And the very wickedness they've sown has become what they reap for their own judgment. Even before the final judgment, people should look around under the sun. And they should look at the horrors of folly that are around us. Not just in the United States. They should think about the folly and wickedness perpetrated throughout the earth and judgments And wickedness brought down that happens again and again. And no one who is wicked should look at the fall and judgments of the wicked and think, well, it probably won't happen to me then. Instead, they should repent 
and turn to God. In other words, if the right application is drawn from verse 15, that the nations sink in the pit they've made, and in the net that they set, their own foot's been caught, David's psalm would mean this for them. Then you should turn from the wickedness and to the Lord before your net catches your foot. You should leave wickedness and hope in God, your righteous refuge, before you are in the pit you've dug. There's time. Repent. In verse 16, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. I think that's the conclusion David is drawing here in verse 16 from verse 15. In other words, the nations sinking in the pit they've made, that's not karma. That's God's righteous judgment. God reigns over the world. Not strange forces governing the universe. God reigns over the world. When it says here that the net that they've hidden, their own foot has been caught. In verse 16, David's saying, that's God making his righteous judgment known. If we draw the right conclusions from the downfall of those who are unrighteous, we're seeing that God is showing something about himself. And that he will bring all the wicked to account. He's making himself known. So in light of how God has made himself known, believe him, trust him, flee to him and turn from what is dishonorable to God. It says here, the wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. So we must see verses 15 and 16 together, I think. The result of the wicked on that last day will be, if you will, a return to Sheol. Which seems kind of strange because it's a picture of the judgment to come for the wicked. What does it mean, return? I think it's a way of saying their origin, their spiritual identity, where they reflect the seed of the serpent. They have allied themselves with unbelievers against the Lord. They've lived in rebellion against the Lord. Where does that attitude come from? From the pit of hell. In other words, their future will be like what their whole hearts and lives desire and bent has been. And that is against the Lord. So they will will go where they belong. That's what verse 17 says. All the nations that forget God. You see, the nations may forget the Lord, but God doesn't forget the cry of the afflicted. He's the avenger of innocent blood. God is a righteous judge, enthroned forever. So we must be those who believe His word and turn to Him. In verse 18, For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. See, from a human perspective, those who are needy and oppressed, those who are downcast and ignored, others might look at that and say, well, they've been forgotten. We need a perspective then that Psalm 9 gives us. Because there shall come a day where it will be shown they were not forgotten. And here in verse 18, the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. It may seem from an earthly perspective that all of their desire for things to be made right. And for all of the exploitation and suffering and affliction they've experienced to be overcome. It may seem like it won't happen. But Psalm 9 says... The day has been decreed and God will not revoke it. It will come. The day of reckoning shall come. The hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Why? Because God is enthroned. Wait on the Lord. We will not hope in vain. Some people may think 
here that they are forgotten and that the hope that they would have would just perish and come to nothing. And you might think that because you've longed for something that hasn't come to pass. You've prayed for something that has been answered differently than you had desired. You have perceived that perhaps God's will would be for you to be in this particular situation. And it seems to you, what is it, delayed? And so you think through this, what's going on? You know, I want to be pleasing to the Lord and trusting in the Lord and I don't understand. But the psalm that we've been studying, friends, tells us that all of God's ways are righteous. That He's enthroned forever. And though His ways may be mysterious, they are never wicked. And that though God's plans may transcend our ability to process and nail down from our earthly perspective, we can trust His deeds. Just recount His wonders. Think about His record of faithfulness. Psalm 9 would be eager for us to not join those who think I'm hoping in vain, praying for nothing. Why would I be doing all of this? Because you can trust the Lord. Because God's ways are higher and He is altogether good. In verses 19 and 20, the end of our psalm is David's call to God to arise. Arise, O Lord, he says. We've heard that before in an earlier psalm. It's also a line drawn from Numbers. Be gracious to me, O God, is from Numbers 6. Arise, O Lord, is language from the days of Moses. In Numbers 10, the ark of God would set out among the people so that they would go and in any embattlement that would follow, God would defend His people. He'd be a divine warrior in their midst. They could trust His hand. And the ark lifting out from the holy place by those carrying it on the poles, the most holy place and carrying it on the poles and brought into the midst of the people covered by that careful linens and coverings and then marched in victory It was as if the Lord was arising from the place of rest behind the veil. When David says, arise, O Lord, we must remember that earlier David had called for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel. And he here is invoking the words of Numbers chapter 10, calling upon God to prevail. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Well, then who? Lord, you prevail. That's what's implied by the negation here. Let not man. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. You prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. In Numbers 10, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee from before you. He says, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged. Let not man. Vulnerable Not invincible man, created, derived, mortal man, let not man prevail. See, David is surrounded by those who are mortal and yet enemies, but he is trusting in as his refuge the eternal enthroned one, so man shall not prevail over God. The Lord in heaven laughs at the conspiracy of wickedness against the anointed one. Psalm 2 is so helpful to inform the confidence David has in Psalm 9. In verse 20, put them in fear, O Lord. We should pray this. We should pray that the wicked would tremble before God. 
that their consciences and their dullness of heart and mind would be awakened in horror of what they are pursuing and the God whom they have defied. They should in fear recognize their standing before God. Lord willing, repent. Let the nations know that they are but men. They're not God's. But God has made himself known to nations that are but men. And so what will we who are but people, who are mortals, do with the words of God? As he has made his character known and spoke of his righteousness. And David here has sung about and exulted and with joy these things. We must join. Earlier in verse 11, you know, I read this verse in verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord. Tell among the peoples his deeds. You know what I think when I hear this verse is, well, that's our mission, isn't it? There it is. What is it that ought to centralize our lives? What is it that ought to, uh, that ought to send us with this kind of a mindset and vision for life around us? It is glorifying God and telling what he has done. It is what we are to do. You could rephrase it in Matthew 28. To make disciples of the nations and teach them, baptize them and all of those things. I think Psalm 9-11 is still the mission of the people of God. And the Gospels give us a lot more flesh to the bones, if you will. But verse 11 is so life-defining. And so I wonder if what David cares about and knows ought to animate us actually is what you care about. And actually is what defines you and motivates your mind. That you would glorify God. David is not interested in having a half-hearted heart. In verse 1, he wants to give thanks to God with all that David is. When God calls us to follow his son, Jesus isn't saying, let's work out a percentage. Let's come and negotiate an agreement. He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and come after me. In other words, come to Jesus with all that you are. Come to him with all that you are. No negotiations, no ifs and ands and buts, but coming to Christ that you might receive all that he is for you in his atoning work. And be animated and sent out with the mission of verse 11 to glorify God in praise and to tell of his deeds. As believers, we want to warn of God's judgment. It is real. It is coming. We want to rejoice in the cross. We want to proclaim the mercy of God to sinners. And we want to call people to join us to worship the Lord. We are those who welcome all to us who will come to Christ for their refuge. And as believers in Jesus, we take comfort. We are never going to be forsaken. We will never be forgotten. The Lord Jesus actually sustains us moment by moment. We are the ones who can be forgetful. The Lord has not that problem. His love is steadfast and His mercies are new morning by morning. And His covenant faithfulness is sure. On this day, friends, on March 12, 2023, we are loved by Christ with steadfast mercy, which we cannot fathom. So let us give thanks to Him, praise to Him with our whole heart. Let's pray.